The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Good morning, church. He's alive, so that means we can be, right? Amen. Come on. (laughs) Hallelujah. It's our day. Uh, I'm Vince. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Love City Church. And if you would, please turn with me to uh, the book of Mark, chapter 16. Uh, Not sure if everyone's aware, but we've already had quite uh, the weekend. Uh, On Friday, we had a joint Good Friday service with a couple other uh, churches from the local area. And uh, that was an incredible time of uh, just focusing on the sacrifice of Christ. And I just want to say everyone that, that took part in that, teams that sacrificed, you know, you weren't able to be a part of the service because you were helping put the thing together and all the run-up work to that. It was a big deal to pull off, but it was really a blessing to those that were here. I, I, I know because I heard so many say that. So thank you. And then, of course, today is Resurrection Sunday, but we didn't feel like we had enough going on. So yesterday, we kicked off our men's group and had the very first one, which was an incredible time uh, of fellowship. We ate together. uh, We got to hear uh, a testimony that left most of us uh, really thankful for Jesus. And then we were able to move into here. We spent a time of worship together and in prayer. um, And we, we, it was amazing. It was awesome. Uh, it's been a big weekend, and, and, I'm, and I'm thankful. Uh, it was funny. I personally didn't have enough going on, so also uh, took the kids to Taekwondo yesterday, and, and the teachers, uh, the owners of the school that we train at, they're really solid believers, precious folks, and uh, we came in the door, and they said, ooh, we didn't expect to see you here this weekend. <laughs> and I said, well, here we are. So we did some roundhouse kicks, and it was fun. But the reason they said that was because, you know, and people joke about this, there's probably some funny videos out there about it. Most of the time, uh, pastors and ministry teams on Resurrection Sunday weekend, they're real geared up and amped up and, you know, everything's real crazy. And uh, I just want you to know we don't actually stress too much about trying to create uh, some kind of over-the-top experience to impress you on Easter, okay? Because what we're going to do today Uh, is we're going to sing, as we already have, like we do every Sunday. We're going to study God's Word and receive communion like we do every Sunday because we believe that the Holy Spirit of God will be moving mightily among us through these things, these means of grace, uh, just as much on August 4th as he is today on April 4th. Why do we believe that? We believe that because Jesus promised he would, right? Amen. So this is a special day, and it's awesome, uh, but we don't need to try to jazz it up. <laughs> the gospel's already pretty exciting, man. The Word of God's already pretty cool. Am I the only one that thinks that, or is there someone else in here? Yeah. Amen. Okay, good. Awesome. Uh, specifically, yesterday, the brothers here, they prayed over you, uh, and, and we're believing that the same resurrecting power of God that brought Jesus up out of the grave is going to be at work in your heart and mind today. And every day. And as we go from here, not just when we're gathered here, but as we go from here to be the salt and light that Christ has called us to be in the world. Uh, I know I already kind of said that we aren't doing any over-the-top stuff 
because Christ and his gospel are exciting and, and sufficient, but I, I just, just to be honest, I was tempted to pop some confetti today uh, just because I am so personally excited about this reality that we get to finish our almost eight-month journey through the book of Mark today on Resurrection Sunday. That's pretty exciting to me. Yeah, we've been doing this a while, uh, and it worked out in God's sovereign providence that today we'll be finishing the book. So that's really exciting. We called this series uh, Servant King, and we have gone verse by verse through uh, all of Mark, and today we're going to finish with chapter 16. So I hope you turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you or an app that you can follow along, we will have the verses on the screens. If you don't own a Bible, please let us know before you leave. We always keep lots because we like to give them away, okay? Uh, so I hope you turn there, and, and I, I want you to also know, <clears throat> as always, we're going to stay anchored in and faithful to the text of Scripture today, but we're going to approach this a, a bit like a southpaw stance, and, and if you don't know what that is, ask Dave Day. He'll fill you in, okay? He knows all about it. Uh, what I mean by that is this is going to be a little unorthodox and out of the box as far as Easter sermons go, but my hope is at the end, our enemy, the devil, is knocked out cold. And we are going to walk out of here with hands raised in victory. Amen. So I want to read Mark 16 with you. Uh, it is a whole chapter, but it's not real long. So here we go. Verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb... When the sun had risen, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went out and reported to those who had been with him, while they were mourning and weeping. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. They went away and reported to others, but they did not believe them either. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, "'Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation.'" He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who is disbelieved shall be condemned. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. Praise God for his word. Amen. Amen. 
Now, as I read this chapter over and over again in, in preparation for this sermon, a beautiful contrast began to come into focus for me. It's, I think it's pretty easy to spot on the surface here both hope and instruction to those who are followers of Jesus. But the, the longer I looked at it, the more this became it's like one of those images that, you know, it's got another image in it after you stare at it for a while. You guys know what I'm talking about? You'll look at something and it just, maybe it just looks like a pretty set of geometric shapes, but you stare at it for a minute, right? And it, you know, it becomes like two panda bears in a bamboo forest or something. You know, it's, there's something else in there, right? Okay. Does that have significance to the rest of the sermon? No, that was a dumb example that I just pulled off the top. Don't forget about the pandas. I know they're cute. Come back. All right. I have to be careful with analogies I use. Jesus, help us. Okay. Here's the point I'm getting at. There is not just encouragement and instruction here for those who already believe, but also for those who doubt. Okay? And let's say this. This is real important. Those aren't always mutually exclusive. Okay? Because coming to faith in Christ almost never means that all of your doubts are instantly erased. Is that true or untrue? That's true. Doubts and questions are actually a sign that you're actually thinking. And I hope we'll see today that Jesus loves doubters. He loves them. So here's what come, friends. Let's reason together. We're going to work a little harder today than maybe you normally would in an Easter sermon, okay? But we're also finishing a book of the Bible, so we're doing both. Amen? All right. <clears throat> here's the first thing I want you to see. In verses 1 through 3, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? What, is we, what do we see from this? What does this tell us? Well, what this tells us, I think, very clearly is that these ladies were not expecting to walk up on a resurrection. Is that right? Why'd they buy the spices? Well, they bought the spices because Jewish burial custom was not embalming like the Egyptians, but they would basically cover the corpse with these spices, perfume it basically, to help with the smell, okay? Uh, we see that from the spices. We see it from the discussion they had on the way. Who's going to move the rock? Now, I want to give them credit for just rolling up there and trusting the Lord that somehow the rock will get moved, but they were worried about the rock, weren't they? They were. They weren't expecting a resurrection, but my question to us, so that we frame this out correctly, is should they have been? Should they have been expecting a resurrection? Well, I want to read you a couple things that should sound familiar. These are both from the book of Mark. Mark 8, starting in verse 29, and he continued questioning, but who, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him and said, you are the Christ, and he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise from the dead. Verse 32, and he was stating the matter plainly. Okay, There's a lot of things Jesus said that was kind of cryptic, and he had to pull them off to the side and say, okay guys, here's what that means. This was not one of them. And he stated the matter plainly. Things continue to move through. Mark 9, verse 30. And from there they went out to begin, out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. 
For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be handed over to men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. My question, why did I go there? Should the ladies have been expecting a resurrection? I say yes. And these were the same ladies, let's remember, that were honored in the last chapter for standing nearby during his crucifixion. They didn't run and hide like many did. These were the most faithful followers Jesus had, and yet they were heading to the tomb to put perfume on his body to cover up the smell of decomposition. That was their mission headed there Easter morning. Now, true, I think it should be fair for us to say, they may not have understood totally what Jesus taught when he said he would raise from the dead, even though he spoke plainly. But I want to give them that, but I also want to say that's really not a great excuse. Because hadn't these ladies and the rest of the followers of Jesus, hadn't they seen him bring Lazarus back? This isn't a totally foreign concept to them. Now, let's just, this is a sidebar. Lazarus being brought back was a resuscitation. That wasn't a, a resurrection. Jesus was the first one truly resurrected into an eternal glorified body. Okay, that's important to note. If you're not sure why, we can t- I'll flesh that out for you later. Come talk to me about it. But here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line I want us to see. Heading there that morning, they were doubters. They were doubters. The question we need to ask ourselves, the question I believe the Lord wants us to dig into this morning, is this question. How did Jesus respond to their doubt? How did Jesus deal with them? We see this in verses 4 through 8. Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who's been crucified. He's risen. He's not here. Behold, here's the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Here's the first thing. How did Jesus deal with their doubt? How did Jesus respond to their doubt? The first thing I want us to see is that he rolled the stone away. He made sure that that stone was rolled away. And that was a grace and a mercy to those women, and it's a grace and a mercy to us today. And why do I say that? You might be thinking, uh, hey, buddy, the stone had to be moved. That's, that's one of the little guys on Kronk's shoulder in Emperor's New Groove. If you haven't seen it, go see it. Every Christian should. Um, <laughs> didn't the stone need to move for Jesus to, to come out? Why are you saying that that had so much to do with being a grace and a mercy to the witnesses that were going to come? And for us, uh, reading this down through the ages, well, we know in John 20... All the bros were sitting in a room, and the Bible says, suddenly, Jesus was standing there in their midst, okay? Now, theologians and and people like to argue, did he he walk through a wall? Was it a, you know, is he like Nightcrawler? Can glorified bodies, you just kind of teleport? I don't know. Any of that's cool, and I'm looking forward to it, so whatever, right? But the bottom line is, uh, Jesus didn't need the rock move to get out of the tomb. That was a grace and a mercy to them. This was God in his great 
compassion meeting them where they were. The stone was moved for them and for us, not for Christ. He didn't need it, okay? Rocks are no longer a problem, as if they ever were for him, but we'll just say that. Uh, and and when, you know, when Jesus popped up and, and you know, saw the guys there in John 20, a, a couple of the things just to make sure we're, we're clear on. That Jesus was resurrected, you know, because that can be confusing. Well, so if he can do that, is he is he just a spirit? Well, no. The Bible's clear to write down for us that he ate fish, right? It's like I'm hungry, and ate some fish right in front of them. He went on further to, uh, as as Thomas made his claim that I'm not going to believe unless I can touch his wounds. He he reached out and let him do it. He touched him. Jesus was physically, bodily resurrected. He was not just a spirit. That's very important. But also in the way he deals with them by eating fish in front of them, by letting Thomas touch the wounds. That also speaks in a way that we don't see recorded here in Mark to his patience and compassion and love for doubters. And when, when we see those pictures, when we see the way that Christ deals with those who are, who are struggling to trust him. You know, I don't know if you see this stuff or how much you pay attention to. There, there's a lot of talk on the interwebs these days about the language about colonizing and, and people being forced or, co- or coerced into Christianity. And, and let me say this. I, I know that there have been many examples of that in history, but we also have to say this. It's pretty clear those that perpetrated those kind of things weren't actually following the example of Jesus. Jesus doesn't coerce anybody through fear. He compels through love. That's his way. And if we're going to follow him, that's the way we have to walk. There's no excuse for anything else. Not only, we're still answering, how did Jesus respond to these doubters showing up with spices to perfume a dead body? Worried about how they were going to move the stone. Not only did he move the stone for them, but then gave them, through the mouth of the angel, the unmatched honor, and I mean this, the unmatched honor in all of human history of being the first to carry the good news that Christ had risen. There will be, there will be no crown put on a human head. There will be no trophy put in a human hand. No, no prize pinned on your chest, no medal put around your neck ever in all of history that will come anywhere near the honor bestowed upon these women to be entrusted with that word, with that message that Christ has risen for them to be given the first shot at carrying that good news. The greatest honor ever given to any human was handed to these doubters. This is just a partial picture of how our God deals with us in our frailty, in our struggles, in our doubt. Before I go any further, I just want to say this. Um, (laughs) Not in the notes, so here we go. Uh, If if I have any, like, wrath hawks in here, you know, you guys remember from history class, I taught you about war hawks. If I have any wrath hawks in here, I don't, I'm not thinking of anybody, but if there's anybody in here that's hearing this message and they're going, whoo, man, I don't know, that's pretty soft. It sounds pretty hyper-gracy. I don't know, man. What, what What about the anger of God? What about the wrath of God? We dealt with that Friday. Now we're in this text, and we're just gonna deal with this text. 
And here's the thing, here's the problem that often happens in Christianity. People tend to pick the Jesus they like. They tend to pick the God that they like, the one they most relate to. Maybe it's the one that Maybe it's the one that helps them stay more on the straight and narrow, whatever it is, but you can't do that because he's, he's, he's more than just a just, wrathful God. And it's okay that he's a just, wrathful God because if he wasn't a just, wrathful God, he couldn't be a loving God. If any of you can stand by and watch someone you love be decimated by somebody else, and this is God having to watch us as children decimated by the effects of sin, if you could watch that and not be angry, I'm worried for you. I'm worried you have no love in your heart. But God's a perfect father and he does. He is a just God and we dealt with that on Friday. But he's also incredibly passionate and merciful. And those things don't stand in opposition to each other. If they do in your mind, we have to think more. We have to ask for God's help to see how those things actually all go together. We're not dealing with two different gods here. We're dealing with one who is just and loving who has wrath against sin, but is infinitely patient and compassionate. Yes to all of that. Okay? So I'm just dealing with the text today, okay? So if you're a wrath hawk, save your email. You already got my response, okay? Amen. Don't waste the typing time. Now, I think right here, at this juncture, is where we need to stop for a minute and address the elephant in the room, okay? Unless somebody in here is holding out on on a really rad story, none of us probably had the benefit of an angel personally delivering the news about the resurrection to you. I haven't had that happen. If you have, come see me. I'd like to hear the story. Okay? I think that's true for all of us. That's not how we've come into this knowledge. So, what does that mean? If we haven't had an angel come in personally, as these women did, tell us, hey, he's not here, he's risen, look, that's where he laid, right? We haven't had that experience, what does that mean? We have to decide if we can believe what we are reading here in God's word. That's really where we find ourselves, and and we shouldn't gloss over that reality, especially since we're talking about God's love and compassion, his patience towards doubters, Can we believe what we're reading? But let's also ask this. Should we? Is that reasonable? And I want to take a moment to let you know that I said, is that reasonable on purpose? Because when talking about things like this, to ask the question, what is most reasonable, is far better than asking the question, what can we prove? Okay, and I'm going to tell you why. Because there's philosophers that will tell you, you can't prove that you exist. Okay? That's true. I've never heard that. Well, okay, go read something in academia. You'll find it. They'll talk you into doubting whether or not you even are real. I know. (laughs) Right? I know. But this is part of why asking the question, what is most reasonable, is really the best and only question we can honestly ask. Because unless Michael J. Fox pulls up out front in a DeLorean and says, hop in, we're going back to Bible times, we can't really prove anything. Okay? Now, if you didn't understand that reference, I'm not mad at you, I'm just disappointed. (laughs) 
okay? <laughs> this, that was a reference to a movie called Back to the Future, where there's a DeLorean that's a time machine, okay? I understand that my references are now aging me. I get it. Amen. The 90s were awesome. All right. I th- that may have been from the 80s. I'm just saying. The, the 90s was a good decade, and, and I, was, I remember them. So, Lord Jesus. I saw something. I'm going to get, whew, can't, not too far rabbit trail, but I saw something today. There was some kid in college writing a, a paper, and they said, uh, even though, uh, even though the, the Matrix was made in the 1900s, a lot of the ideas presented are still relevant today. I'm like, whoo. <laughs> okay. All right. Neat. Do you understand what I'm saying, though? Don't get sidetracked. If we don't have a time machine, you can't prove anything. Go all the way, go to the creation of the universe, go to this, what we're talking about now, the time of Christ. You're either going to trust what is written and recorded here and, and the evidence that would stack up to make us say that this is reliable. You, do, you don't get to hide under, I don't think, with intellectual honesty, the idea that, well, if you can't prove it, I'm not, I'm not going to listen to it. You, don't, you can't. You can't disprove it or prove it. What you have to do is say, okay, what can I look at? What can I observe? What, can I, what evidence can I consider? And then what is most reasonable? What's the most reasonable conclusion I can come to? After all of that, okay? I'm going to propose to you that what we have in God's word is better than an angel personally visiting you. Because in the end, that's not really verifiable. Because the reality is, you could have gotten the back of the fridge and ate some sour cream that was past the, the sell-by date and hallucinate. Is that right or wrong? That's possible. I saw an angel, he said this to me, what have you eaten in the last 24 hours? I'm not saying you didn't. Maybe you, God, God can do that. I'm here for it. But, but in any case, someone could still cast doubt no matter how convincing your story was, right? It's not verifiable. This is written. This has been scrutinized for 2,000 years. There's been a lot of haters for a long time want to tear this apart. And we're still here. <laughs> right? What's up? <clears throat> I told you that these verses speak as much to doubters as it does to believers. And that a big part of what the Holy Spirit showed me as I prepared for this was that Jesus loves doubters. And I'm repeating that here on purpose because if Jesus loves doubters, the question is, what should his followers do? They should love them as well. But I'm also apologizing in advance if if my excitement makes me seem antagonistic, and I'm serious about this, I, I am not trying to bully or antagonize anybody. I'm inviting us to think. But, full disclosure, I am not going to be able to completely dampen my enthusiasm, okay? So please forgive me in advance as I start to unpack this stuff, okay? I'm still on, I'm still on this question. Should we believe what we read here? Is it reasonable to do so? Should we? Okay, well, here's some things to consider. Lots more, lots more that could have been said, okay? And if you want to sit down and talk about it, let's do it. First thing, we have it recorded all through the scriptures that Jesus called out what would happen multiple times before it actually happened. Okay, what are, you gonna, what are we going to do with that? 
And you might say, oh, well, that was added in or whatever. I, okay, is, is there evidence for tampering? Is all, all kinds of stuff that we could look at from a literary analysis standpoint to say, well, probably not. But, but it's not just that Jesus predicted these events. It's not just that, and we know that's part of what got him crucified. That's part of what they were hurling back at him as the Sanhedrin gave the, the kind of fake trial, right? He said he would destroy the temple and raise it in three days. That was a little bit more cryptic way, but he's saying the same thing, wasn't he? Destroy this temple, I'm going to raise it in three days, okay? Jesus told us what was going to happen before it happened, but it isn't just him. Also, David in Psalm 22, a thousand years before the time of Christ, described crucifixion. So did Isaiah, 700 years before the time of Christ. And here's the kicker, both of those were before crucifixion was invented. How do you account for that? It can't be an add-in. Those scriptures were well-known, been around a long time. By the time someone would have went in and tampered, we've, we've got the copies, okay? Secondly, women in this time, this was dumb, but this was the reality, could not testify in a Jewish court, okay? And yet they are the ones entrusted with the angel's message, okay? So what am I saying to you? I'm saying if... I'm getting together with my um, ancient Near East bros, and we're going to cook up a religion and try to fool everybody. What we're not going to do in this time is say, hey, I'll tell you what, we're going we're gonna to make the, like the whole crux of this thing rest on the eyewitness testimony of some chicks. That was the ancient Near East bros. That wasn't me. I, don't, I wouldn't call women chicks. I'm, that's what they did. Okay. <laughs> it got quiet in here. I was like, what? Is there something behind me? Oh, okay. I know. I know what happened. All right, so again, this is just, there's dozens, if not hundreds of things we could point out like that. It's like, if you were trying to cook something up, you, probably, you, wouldn't, have, you wouldn't have done that. That's not the way. That's not going to help. That would hurt your attempt, okay? Three, all of the apostles, except John, who was boiled in oil but survived, all of the apostles were martyred for refusing to stop saying that Jesus rose from the grave we got to ask ourselves, what was in it for them? Because if, if Christianity and the story of, of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, if it's all a cooked-up fairy tale, if it's a myth that belongs alongside the rest, <clears throat> we have to ask ourselves, what was in it for these apostles who went, for the most part, to excruciating deaths, refusing to deny that they saw the risen Christ? that he rose from the grave. What was in it for them? What did they get, right? Were, were they driving around on luxury donkeys, you know, the, the whole time that they were? No, man. They, they signed up for a life of persecution and difficulty in order to spread this great message. There's nothing in it for them. I understand there's a bunch of examples today of people either trying to take true Christianity, twist it a little bit, and make it into like a weird cult and, and have a false Jesus, and then that guy's, you know, flying around in jets and whatever and living in mansions. I, I get that there's examples of that, but that's not this. That, this isn't what happened for them. They signed up to go preach this message to a, a time and a culture and a kingdom that was very hostile to it. They signed up to be denied and rejected by their own ethnic people, but also to be persecuted by the, the governing authorities of the time in Rome. There was no winning here, <laughs> right? They realized that the delusions they had, once Jesus died on a cross and rose from the grave, they realized, oh, we're not doing a military overthrow thing. Okay. 
Maybe early on their motives were mixed, but to see it all play out and then still stand all the way to death and say, no. He rose and I saw it. There was no incentive other than telling the truth. Verse 6 here is also helpful. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. Okay? The Nazarene who has been crucified. This, we, we got to think about this, okay? Nazareth was a backwater little podunk spot in the middle of a kind of backwater little podunk territory that Rome had conquered. It was a nowhere type place. My family and I, we were with some friends in Virginia this last week. We drove by a town. I can't, I can't remember the name of the town. Probably better that I don't. The, the sign literally said population 46. And I looked over to my body and I'm like, how do you get a sign for 46 population? Like, that's, I don't know. Anyways. <laughs> Seems like maybe a waste of resources, but whatever. Um, that's, but that's how Nazareth was. It was like that, okay? So we have to ask ourselves, how did the son of a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth end up rising up to a place of prominence and end up literally reshaping the history of the world? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And furthermore, he was crucified. It's so interesting that the angel says, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Neither one of these were, were titles that you would want. You wouldn't want to be a guy from Nazareth, and you definitely didn't want to be crucified. But Jesus, because he's not just the king of kings, he's a servant king, wore those titles as glory. And Jesus being crucified, friends, we have to remember, we have to understand, this is not just a horrific, torturous death. It's not just that. Crucifixion was the original way to cancel somebody. It was done publicly. They hung signs above their heads like king of the Jews to shame them. It was, it was a way to show how powerless they really were. To strip them of any legitimacy. That, that crucifixion, it should have shut Jesus down. And if he hadn't risen from the grave, it probably would have. But there was just one problem with him just fading into obscurity. The stone rolled away and, and, and he popped up out, right? So it's like, we got to talk about this, right? <laughs> he didn't go away. But we, we, can, we think, can we honestly think, how, how does somebody from Nazareth who was crucified, which was meant to just cast them on the, on the dung heap of history, how did, how did he end up changing everything? Friends, there was no internet. It wasn't like, you know, the guy recently skateboarding down the street to... I don't know, Fleetwood Mac or something, drinking ocean spray. Like, like that, everyone in the world saw that guy like an hour after it happened because of the internet. They didn't have that then. So what pushed this story out? Because this, this was not like that guy. Like, where's that guy now? I don't know. Do you know? Probably not. But, but I still am hearing about Jesus. I'm still here singing songs to him. This wasn't a 15 minutes of fame thing. It, it's a 2,000 years of fame thing. It's an eternity fame thing. Come on. Why didn't it just go away? Probably because he rose from the grave. That's about the only thing I can think of that would, that would push this beyond all of those barriers. Amen. 
we got to ask ourselves, man, in, in this time, the Caesars were worshipped as God, and they had a chokehold on the power structures of the day. Why, where are the temples to Caesar today? They already had a pantheon of gods. Where are the temples to Jupiter today? Where's the temples to Zeus today? If you go look at them, they're ruins because nobody's there worshiping at them anymore. But here we are worshiping a Jewish carpenter's son who got crucified. Why? Because he got up. Because he said he would, and then he did. <laughs> if you have another explanation, I, I, this is, okay, I said I was going to try not to be antagonistic, and I don't, I, I'm serious, I don't want to sound like a bully, I'm just... I don't, you know, oh, Jesus help us. Okay, and why does this matter? Why am, I, why am I railing on it? Because, guys, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, if he didn't, then those who trust him should be pitied, and our faith is worthless. Paul said that. This is a linchpin. It's the linchpin. What are we going to believe about the resurrection? And part of what I'm trying to show you is it's, it's, not, it's not foolish. It's not ignorant. It's not backwards. It's, you don't have to be an unthinking person in order to believe what we read here today, that Jesus indeed rose from the grave. As a matter of fact, when you really begin to think through all of the observable evidence that we can look at, it becomes at least reasonable, and I would say, and I'm biased, so that's fine, I would say the most reasonable conclusion is something happened here for this crucified guy from a nowhere place to be the, the center of our worship 2,000 years later. To be the one who, more songs have been sung to him, more books have been written about him than anybody ever. His name is on the lips of billions. <laughs> Amen. And, and what are the implications of this? Well, if Jesus did rise like he said he would, okay, then he was who he said he was. <laughs> and that makes whether you trust him or reject him the most important thing you will ever do. And you may be thinking even at this point, okay, buddy, you're excited, but here's, here's my problem. I... I I hear everything you're saying, but I still have questions, or I'm just not, I'm not convinced yet. Hey, you, you know what? Here's what I want you to hear, if that's where you're at. Jesus has far more love and patience than we have doubts and fears about trusting him. If you get in a contest with Jesus, and you reach into your bag, and you're throwing your doubts and fears at him, his bag of love and patience is a lot deeper. You're going to lose that water balloon fight. Why'd you say water balloons? I don't know. It was another throwaway analogy. Quit thinking about that stuff, okay? He's got far more love and patience than we have doubts and fears about trusting him. And, and here, listen to me. If, if that's where you're at, if you're grappling with that right now, that's what I want you to hear. That's the takeaway I want you to have. But those of us who have already placed faith in him, we need to hear this too. And we need to let it shape the way we walk with those who are still trying to figure this out. 
as to shape the way we walk with those that are still reaching into a bag, even if they're doing it aggressively. There may be a bunch of underlying factors that make it hard for them to trust in the goodness of Christ, to trust in the reliability of this account. It's often very complicated. But how did Jesus deal with doubters? That's what I want us really to be walking away thinking about today. And also being filled with gratitude because we too were once doubters. And, and the reality is, in a lot of ways, we still are. We don't have, I've been thinking about these things for a long time. Can I just say this to you? I hope this doesn't depress you. All my questions are not answered yet. Still have a lot. If you're going to think about this stuff at all, in a real way, you're going to have questions. Some of those are going to be reserved for God alone. Some of those are questions that if God was to try to answer them, our our sweet little brains would just melt. We couldn't even keep up, okay? And so there has to be a humility in the way we approach these things, but this this is the truth, man. Coming to Christ doesn't mean all your doubts get erased, and that's okay. That's okay. I would suggest bringing those doubts to him from a posture of humility instead of screaming at him about it, because he's God and such, right? But even still, (laughs) they were hurling insults from the bottom of the cross. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Okay, and so you may deal with people. Believers, I'm talking to you now. You may deal with people in your life. God may cause a divine intersection in your life with somebody that's in that place, hurting, struggling, overcome with the pain and the reality of sin and brokenness in this world, and they may have a lot of really hard questions for God. And it may come, those questions may come through teeth clenched. Are you going to take that personally? Are you going to shrink back from it because you're scared of it? Are you going to be shook in your own confidence about the reliability of what has been recorded for us? Or will you, in the power of the Spirit, and it's only going to be by the power of the Spirit, move forward in love to engage with that? This is what we have laid before us. You might be wondering, how can I talk like this? How do I know that the Lord has patient compassion on those still struggling to believe? How do you know? You're talking real confident about it. Well, here's part of why. Because his disciples didn't even believe the eyewitness testimony of their friends who had been traveling with them for three years. Didn't it tell us that? Mary Magdalene runs up, Jesus is alive. What does it say? They didn't believe her. And then he, on the road to Emmaus, shows up to two other disciples. The other, uh, another place in the Gospels that tells us he unpacked for them. This is, this is the coolest Bible study ever, and I'm signing up for this class in eternity. When Jesus teaches, he walked them through the Old Testament and showed them himself in the Scriptures. Buddy. I can see a lot of it, and it's real exciting, but I I guarantee you there's stuff I've missed. So I'm I'm in that one. If there's a limit, and there's only one spot left on that list when we get there, and I'm not on it yet, you put my name, all right? As an act of love and service to me, I'm claiming it. Pastoral right. I'm in that class. You can wait. We have eternity, okay? (laughs) Okay, so, so they rejected the eyewitness testimony of their own friends, 
right? Because we, we heard in, in chapter 15, these women, they had been with Jesus all through Galilee. They were part of the crew, okay? Now he's about to come and engage with these guys when they rejected their testimony and the testimony of the guys that saw him on the road to Emmaus. They rejected this eyewitness testimony. You want to talk about doubters. Let's look at the 11 now. What does he do? How does Jesus respond to the 11? I'll tell you right now, far better than I probably would have. Now, after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. They went away and reported it to the others, but what did they do, Love City? They did not believe them either. How's the master deal with this? Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. What is he, so what do we see? Friends, he corrects them, but he doesn't reject them. And honestly, he would have been justified at this stage just smiting them all. Are you kidding me? These were the guys that were there for all the picnics. These were the guys that were here for all the teachings when Jesus said multiple times, plainly, they're going to get me, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again in three days. And then they got eyewitness testimony coming from friends who they had been with for a long time, they had no reason to doubt them, saying, hey, I saw him. And what is it? They refused to believe. It's like, what? But what do we see as a response from Jesus? Yes, he corrects them as an act of love because they needed corrected, but he doesn't reject them. And he doesn't vaporize them, <laughs> which at that point, I would think was on the table, personally. Like, okay, boys. <laughs> Who wants to be a disciple? <laughs> you know? Is there anybody else? Oh, Jesus. Now, and remember, I've taught you all through the book of Mark. When we see stuff like this, goofy, silly, just stuff that's like, man, how could, how could you be that dense? What we can't do is just go, oh, man, yeah, look at that. They're dense. We've got to see ourselves in it, okay? Because we're, we're doubters too. We're doubters too, and he deals with us the same way. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Right? I hope that means something to you today. It means something to me. This is the kind of God I'm dealing with. It's the kind of king I have. He could have smote them right there, but he doesn't, does he? No. He speaks the truth to them in love, and then he entrusts them with the most important task any humans will ever undertake. Right after they had just proven they weren't trustworthy on their own. Why would Jesus do this? That's what we gotta ask ourselves that. And when we find the answer to why, in these last five verses. And so we're gonna read those now, but along the way, we need we need to address some things 
Because, as I told you, this is an Easter sermon, but we're also finishing a verse-by-verse study through Mark. So we don't just want to skip this part, okay? Um, I also want you to be aware, some of you may know this, there is some scholarly controversy around the last 11 verses in the book of Mark. There are some that think it is a later edition of a scribe. Uh, so what that would mean is that, the, that verse 8 would have been the last thing Mark wrote. Okay, so let's read that. Verse 8. Uh, they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Boom. End of the book. Okay? Maybe. Maybe. That seems like a weird way to end it. Um, also, there's early church fathers, and, and there's people that can cite it both ways. Uh, some early church fathers that, that seemed to quote from the last 11 verses of Mark 16 um, made even doctrinal arguments from it. There, you know, when you get into the nitty-gritty, and I'm not going to do that with you now, this, honestly, mentioning this at all in an Easter sermon is weird, but again, this is also a verse-by-verse study through Mark, so I need to say this to you. The bottom line is, I'm going to bottom line it for you. If, if you're like me and kind of nerdy and knowing all the little details make, you know, turns your crank... You, you can do that, look into it, and you know, you're going to be stacking this manuscript against that manuscript, and you know, la da 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 da. But here's the, I'm going to bottom line it for you. Here's the bottom line there's nothing in the last 11 verses that is in conflict with the rest of what the gospels say. Okay? So we're going to teach from it and feel safe about it. Amen? That's, that's the bottom line. Okay? Amen. Okay, so verses 15 through 20. Verse 15, here it is. What did I say to you? He, he corrects them in love, doesn't smite them, and then what does he do? Gives them the most important job ever placed into human hands. Verse 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. After that display of unworthiness, untrustworthiness, he corrects them, and then he hands them this. I still trust you. I still love you. And you're still my chosen instruments. Yeah, you're broke. <laughs> yes. Why would he do that? We're going to get to it. Verse 16. can be a little confusing. We're not going to say much about it. But it says, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. This has caused confusion. Because Jesus said, He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. So there's people that have thought, oh, okay, well, that means water baptism is required for salvation, okay? That, first of all, would be contrary to all of the rest of what we see revealed in Scripture as it pertains to the gospel. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, okay? So adding water baptism to that is a problem. Secondly, notice that the focus here is not on baptism but on belief. He who has believed and been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Does it say, but he who has disbelieved and is not baptized shall be condemned? It does not. Basically what you have here is, the, the, it's the way we always talk about baptism. Baptism is not required for salvation, but it is required for obedience. If you're a follower of Jesus, you should be water baptized as a public declaration of your faith in Christ. Yes. That's what it looks like to obey. But it is not a requirement for salvation. If it was, Jesus could not have looked at the thief next to him and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Okay? They didn't pull him down and dunk him and stick him back up there. 
All right? I, I know the way it's worded is confusing, but we just have to really pay attention to the back half to understand really. Jesus put it together like this because to say that baptism isn't required for salvation, we should not come away from that message or that word saying, oh, well, baptism isn't a requirement. It is. It's required for obedience. And if you're a Jesus follower, then you're going to obey him. And water baptism is absolutely the next step after you come to faith in Christ, okay? So that's how we sort all that. Uh, verses 17 and 18. This, this gets people excited. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Uh, to demonstrate this, I brought a snake in today. Will you guys bring that up? I'm just kidding. There's no snakes. <laughs> here's a... Here's, here's what, guys, there's, <clears throat> there's a lot around this. I, I do not have time. Do not have time to get into the weeds on this. But here's what I want you to hear. We have instances of the apostle doing all the things recorded in the scriptures. These things are all recorded later in the scriptures, except for drinking poison. Okay, Paul was bitten by a viper. It didn't kill him. Uh, they spoke with other tongues and acts. They cast out demons. Okay, all these things. Um, and, and so in here, I'm going to bottom line this for you quickly. I believe God still protects his children from many dangers as we obey his command to spread the gospel. I believe he still do that, okay? If we're obeying his command to spread the gospel, and that's, and that's what we're doing. This, this was never meant as a prescription or a test of faith, okay? And I think that's evidenced well by, unfortunately, you know, how many guys have been hopping around with rattlesnakes and died from getting bit. You know, it's probably not what that meant, okay? That's taking this verse and doing something with it it was never meant to do. Jesus here is speaking confidence to his people. As you go, I'm going to be with you. It's not even so much about the specifics. It's that he's got your back. Does that help you feel good? I feel great about it. If Jesus has my back, buddy, I'm ready to roll. Whom then shall I fear, right? Amen. That, that, was, that was better than you acted like it was, Okay. Some of you are still worried I've got a snake somewhere. There is none. That was a joke. Perhaps in poor taste. Now in hindsight, I see that. But anyways. Okay. So this, what we're working through here, we're still trying to answer the question. I told you we had to deviate a little bit. I had to deal with what was in those scriptures because they're here. But the whole reason we're working right now is we want to answer this question. Why would Jesus trust the greatest and most important mission ever undertaken to a bunch of people who had proven they couldn't be trusted on their own. Why would he do that? Let me read you verses 19 and 20. Here's where we find the answer. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. Why would Jesus trust the greatest and most important mission ever undertaken to a bunch of people who'd proven they couldn't be trusted on their own. Why would he do that? Because the plan was never for us to be on our own. The Lord worked with them. That's why he could trust us, because he's with us. 
He's not just with us, now he's in us. That's always been the plan. We talked about the veil in the temple being torn from top to bottom, that God removed the barrier. That wasn't just so that we could come into the Holy of Holies. That was part of it, but it was also so that the Spirit of God could move out. The plan was never for Jesus to to stay in flesh embodied here on earth and for the move of the gospel and the spread of the good news of who he is and what he's done being stuck just in a geographic location wherever Jesus could walk. The plan was always for the Spirit of God to come and to fill and to indwell all of his people everywhere so that the message of gospel could go all the way to the ends of the earth, to all creation, to the glory of God. That was always the plan. (laughs) And when God makes a plan, newsflash, it comes to pass. How could he trust such dinguses like this with the greatest mission that's ever been given? Well, friends, let's also ask, how could he ever trust dinguses like this with the greatest mission that's ever been undertaken? Because he's with me. (laughs) Because I never was ever going to be put in a spot where I had to do this on my strength. Come on. Friends, this is the gospel. This points us right where we need to be pointed. We are like shattered clay pots on our own. We can never hold for ourselves the living water that only God provides, much less pour any out for others. But when we trust in Jesus and we place all our broken pieces in his hands, he remakes us into something more usable and beautiful than we could ever imagine. If you're hearing me today and you've yet to trust Jesus, Jesus, this gentle servant savior we've seen, I want you to know he loves you and he knows you are broken and he is patiently waiting for you to admit it. And he's going to keep on. His patience will outlast your stubbornness, I promise. You're not going to wear him out. If you're hearing me today and you've acknowledged your need for him, you've realized like Peter did all the way back in Mark 8 that he is the Messiah, but you still struggle with doubts and and the sins that come with them, please remember this. God is a master potter and he promised to finish the restoration that he began in you. I know you're not perfect yet. He knows it too. But when you lay all those broken pieces in his hands and he picks it up and he begins to work on it, he's promised he won't stop till he's through. Come on. May these verses today give hope to all those who doubt. And may they remind those who have already experienced the miracle of salvation by grace through faith in Christ May it remind us how we are to love and serve those who doubt. May these verses today build a robust and holy boldness in the people of God that their faith is reasonable and not reserved for fools. And what is it, friends? What is it that we've read in these scriptures today? We've seen part of the final act in the still unfolding drama of God's eternal plan of redemption. The resurrection of Christ 
was a big piece of the puzzle. It's a linchpin to the whole thing. But the redemptive plan of God is still unfolding today, now, in this room. And when we go from here, the call to go out into all creation and preach this good gospel is still ringing and echoing down through the ages to us today. We're not done. But today, we read a a part of the final act in that drama that started all the way back in Genesis 3. Right? When God said, yeah, you'll bruise his heel, but buddy, he's going to crush your head. That's how this is going down. The king of kings set aside his royal rights to be born of a virgin and humbly serve the humans that he created. He died in our place to pay the price for our sin and rebellion that separated us from him. He has called us now to follow in response, to pick up our cross and to put to death our selfish pursuits. And he rose from the grave so we can know that we too will be given eternal life. On this resurrection day, And every day, may we see Christ's great goodness. May we trust his endless love. And may we bow our knee to his perfect power. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you for Mark 16. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, for your mercy upon us. Not just in rolling the stone away so that we could have eyewitness testimony of your resurrection. Not just for doing it then, but also for making sure it was recorded for us. And you didn't just pick one guy to record it. You picked four so that we could see the different vantage points and angles. And we could see the total picture. We could come to a place of being able to stand resolute that this faith is not just fanciful. It's reasonable. Thank you for the holy boldness that your spirit cultivates in our hearts as we consider these things. Thank you, God, that you have never, ever required your people to turn off their minds to worship you. But as a matter of fact, you said you want us to love you with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and all of our strength. Thank you that we can be critically thinking people and worshipers. As a matter of fact, Lord, I believe you encourage it. Father, I pray for all those, whether they're here with us today or joining us through live stream, those who doubt, God, I ask that they would see your heart towards them today. I ask that your loving kindness would draw them to you. I ask that they would see at least that you're someone they can trust to engage with, that you're not waiting to smite them, you're not waiting to crush them, but you love them. Thank you, Lord, that you love doubters. Thank you, Lord that you love buffoons like me, that even in all that you've shown me and all that you've taught me and all the time I've been able to spend in your word, that still there's times that I falter in belief, there's times that I'm frail, that I don't walk in the holy boldness that should accompany a son of God. I thank you that your mercy is new for us every morning. And I thank you that the process you started in us, you've promised to finish. Help us, God, all to yield ourselves into your hands, to trust you because you have earned that trust. You're worthy of it, Lord. You're worthy of our worship. We exalt you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.